0: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking Podcast. If this is your first time listening, write a review, share with a friend, hit that subscribe button, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got Michael Slaby, uh, who's currently the chief strategist at Harmony Labs, but formerly he was the chief innovation officer for Obama's campaign in 2012. And before that, he was the chief technology officer for Obama's campaign in 2008. Today we talk about his book, but what we also expand into is what's really underpinning all of the problems of American society and how does tech and media play into that? So listen up and enjoy.
1: Everyone, we're back. We're really excited for today. We have a great guest, Michael Slaby. He's a longtime political strategist. He was on the Obama 2008 and 2012 campaigns as CTO and CIO, respectively. He's currently the chief strategist over at Harmony Labs, uh, and they are all about decoding media social effects. Uh, It looks like their mission is we envision a world where media systems support healthy democratic culture and healthy, happy people. And right now he's on book tour for all the people, a book that says redeeming the broken promises of modern media and reclaiming our civic life. Michael, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Yeah. And look, uh, for everyone listening, you know, this is a conversation about the media and obviously bias is going to come up. So I have to say Michael and I are friends, but of course we're going to have a healthy and fun conversation here. And I think we should just, you know, take it from the top. You know, there's a lot of things I want to talk about, but um, something that I found really interesting when I was reading the book was something uh, called optimism bias and i was talking about it with ed on the side and he was like oh it's kind of like the frog on on the pan when it's too hot but they don't jump and i thought that was actually a pretty interesting analogy but i'll let michael actually explain kind of the concept and just how that permeates into our behavior with social media so
2: uh, optimism bias specifically is, is sort of comes out of this sort of psychology world around how we interpret risk um and we have a tendency to underestimate negative consequences um which is kind of one of the things that sort of got us out of the cave in the first place you know 75,000 years ago that you know if we were really on top of how risky life was we might not ever leave our houses and optimism bias is is is, is sort of an evolutionary way for humans to sort of stay out in the world and and stay engaged um but it has us underestimating, sort of constantly underestimating negative consequences. It shows up in the media conversation in a, in a bunch of relation to bias, uh, particularly around confirmation bias, which is related, which is we tend to believe that things that confirm our beliefs are true, whether our beliefs are true or not, right? Like that, that we are looking for validation from the world around us sort of all the time. And in a world where uh, where al- algorithms are helping decide what we see, it turns out it's really valuable for platforms like Facebook and Twitter to share content with us that is likely to confirm what we already believe. And it creates a really intense sorting pressure in society to narrow the scope of our world to only that which we already agree with, which ultimately sort of defeats the purpose of a more vibrant, inclusive, diverse set of voices in society.
0: So in in touching on those things, just the way that information is transmitted, the way that we use information through like, you know, a, a motivated reasoning lens. It got me thinking about your book, Michael, about tech and media. And, and just sort of how the institutions have sort of eroded or, or, or kind of pivoted in a bad way, to, you know, that's sort of increased the salience of, of uh, our social divisions. Like my question is, are we really seeing a tech and media crisis or is there actually like an underlying epistemic crisis that's that, you know, sort of the media and tech is just overlaid on top of that and is just sort of like juicing that up? I think you're right to identify a broader
2: sort of challenge and crisis in culture and society. I think it's easy to scapegoat social media as the as the sort of villain in a situa- in the situation. I think we see that a lot. Right sort of Mark Zuckerberg is destroying democracy which sort of like makes for a good blog headline but is pretty inaccurate ultimately. A- and not to say I don't want to absolve Facebook of responsibility. They're they're not a good actor when it comes to sort of healthy social discourse and healthy civic life. However, Um, what you're identifying is is really a broader challenge across how we communicate and how we tell stories and who tells stories that extends well beyond to, to all of media and all of storytelling and all of how we consume information. And social media to a certain extent might be a bit of the gasoline on the inferno or certainly the sort of commercialization and the economics of attention accelerate and make worse a lot of t- of trends that have been in society and in media for several decades now for sure.
0: Yeah, cuz there's if if you look at like the, you know, sort of the underlying epistemology and and you're looking at these two different bubbles in America. You know, and quickly like uh, epistemology is a branch of philosophy that covers knowledge and knowledge production and basically it holds that knowledge is inherently social and built on trust rather than you know uh that most of the things we understand we've we've gotten from trusted sources whether they be publications or families or teachers versus like we do our own individual inquiries and in like as scientists and find the evidence for ourselves like nobody has time to do that so If knowledge works that way, you know, and then you have the sort of the gasoline of tech and media poured on top of that, and you're seeing one side, if we want to break down the right and the left, the right side, just this sort of chaotic environment of misinformation. If we had a universal problem, let's say that tech was, was, you know, sort of uh, creating a universal clusterfuck, then on the left, we would probably see a bunch of congressmen and women that launched their careers off of 9-11 truth movement. Right, because on the right we see Marjorie and what's the guy's name launching their con- congressional careers off of QAnon, and then even you know Donald Trump launch- launching his presidential career off of birtherism, off of your boy Obama. So we just don't see the same symmetry on the left side. It, it seems to be a specific phenomenon of the right. Do you sort of examine that at all in your book? Uh,
2: a little bit, and and I think, but and and it is absolutely sort of central to this question. This sort of failure of epistemology like our ability to share wisdom knowledge to derive meaning for things is very much tied to our ability to tell stories right a lot of the systems and structures we use to define culture are fiction right that the concept of a nation state is a made up idea it's not like a natural occurring phenomenon like gravity Um, you know, and a lot of, you know, this sort of echoes a lot of what Yuval Harari talks about in his work in Sapiens around sort of fiction and storytelling being sort of humanity's great superpower, because it allows us to organize at scale in a way that other animals are incapable, but it requires that we share those stories, that those stories are shared widely. And when what's interesting, I think about sort of the, the, your focus on epistemology and sort of the, the, the necessary, reality of trusted sources, is that as media has evolved, the systems we had for trust were very much built on institutions and gatekeepers. Um, in a channel-based world, and sort of the old Walter Cronkite view of the world, we were sort of told what to trust based on inst- some sort of institution. Someone granted trust. Someone granted credibility. And that system had a lot of problems. It, it excluded most voices from the conversation. I think there's a lot of sort of misguided nostalgia about can we go back to a simpler time and I, I don't want to go back to that time I don't want to go back to a time where an old white dude told me what mattered to other old white dudes and that was truth like that just seems like an awfully narrow view of the world and society and deeply problematic on lots and lots of levels however as the gatekeeper sort of broke down and lost control over more voices rising more information more sources we haven't really come up with a consistent way of replacing markers for credibility and authority. Like it used to be a feature of the institution. Now the institution is disempowered and credibility has become sort of the wild west and the platforms make this worse because they don't help us distinguish credible from not credible. It is very hard to tell the difference between a conspiracy theory from Alex Jones, a valid sort of careful investigative journalism report from the Washington Post and a post from my mom about her cat. Like I can't tell the difference. They are indistinguishable in my feed and that works to Twitter and Facebook's benefit. It keeps me sort of guessing and engaged and and not distinguishing clearly and not dismissing or excluding things that shouldn't be valuable. And... I think the question about the le- how this plays out left versus right, I think there's plenty of ideological bias in media, like beyond you know news in particular, right? People sort of on the left villainize Fox News, people on the right villainize M- villainize MSNBC. I think MSNBC is, you know, a, a pretty proudly openly progressive organization. They are ideologically oriented, but there is an adherence to fact in their work that I think is largely not present in Fox News. I think there's a, a sort of opportunism about sort of pseudoscience and a sort of backward-looking nostalgia present in conservatism, mass conservatism, that is dishonest about fact. And I think w- one of the things that's interesting and represented in your question about epistemology, you know, you said we don't all have time to do all the research ourselves. Like, we have to trust each other and for sources. But one of the rallying cries... Of QAnon conspiracy is do your own research. <laughs> right? But what what is interesting about that is it makes people deeply susceptible to misinformation and disinformation. Absolutely. Right. Because it sounds conspiracy feels pseudoscientific. Right? It's it's sort of like just rational enough that it feels like it could be true if you're already right. scared and othered and nervous and and, and prone to in-group, out-group thinking and primed for all this other stuff, now you get fed with this pseudoscientific thing and a, a willingness to dismiss expertise as valid to do your own research. And you just like set up a world where the, the idea of shared credibility is totally broken. And if you're willing to be opportunistic about that for power, you can be president of the United States apparently.
1: What do you think is the, what's the consequence on this generation who doesn't know anything different? You know, like we're, we're a bit older. We've seen a shift. We've seen a change. What, what do you, do you address that in your book? And, and what are the implications?
2: I think the generational, the generational divide is really interesting. Cause so I'm, I'm sort of the tweener generation between gen X and millennial. I was born in the late seventies. I didn't have email until high school, until after high school. So like I, I am sort of very much this transitional generation and I think younger people, you know, millennials and younger, particularly post like post-millennials because the oldest millennials are now 40, like they're like in their like in, you know, they're not that young anymore, <laughs> anymore. but the sort of Gen Y and Gen Z group. One of the things that's interesting is that they never had an expectation that credibility was going to be shared ever. They didn't, they never experienced that world and as a result I think to a large degree, because they don't expect it, they are as individuals, better consumers of information in a lot of ways. They're more Mm. skeptical about sources. They ask better questions about where things came from. They're more willing to dismiss things as untrue and untested and unproven, whereas older people tend to expect something like on a news channel to be true.
0: Sure.
2: And I think younger people don't expect that. Now that has other problems. Like how do communities that don't share information sources relate to each other? If we're all being skeptical within our communities, how do those communities bridge? And bridging is like a really interesting question and an important question for us to to sort of identify in an increasingly vibrant, increasingly diverse uh, sort of society where the power of storyteller right who gets to tell stories is an expression of power and and the ability to tell stories is an expression of power and that that is more um distributed is a invariably in my mind a good thing for sort of the 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 breadth of perspective and the richness of culture however it means we need to find ways to like bridge between groups and that's tough right in a world where we don't share sources and we don't share models for credibility and And we don't share realities
1: for
0: the most yeah we
2: live in we live i I talk about the idea that we sort of you know there's this famous uh, political speech by john edwards in 2004 called the two americas speech and it was all about america divided by class mostly and how america was increasingly being experienced in totally different ways by um these different groups And I I think it's sort of an interesting, early, sort of relatively early attempt to get at sort of the wild income inequality that's emerged as sort of like the primary uh, feature of American capitalism. But I think what's more likely true is that because the view from our view of the world from our place in the graph is unique, we basically live in 300 million unique Americas that share geography. And how do we unite like how do how do we create shared community without you know we need identity we need smaller communities to feel safe and to have a sense of belonging and purpose but we also want to be connected to each other in a in a in a country that has its own story that we share at some level even if that story is one of debate even if that story is under debate like there is a, a where does that conversation happen where is that argument happening and i don't know that it's happening
1: at all right now i want to tap in really really quickly on the gen z thing i just i just want to you know i hear you know everyone loves saying how much gen z is going to save us but they always say this about oh i didn't say they were going to save us us. every generation it's like okay (laughs) no 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 oh i didn't think you said that but i that's that's just you know the popular consensus and i would say that while yes they are very cautious of tv because Quite frankly, they didn't grow up on TV. They grew up on Netflix and everything else. It's just like transcended to a different thing. So our parents or folks we know might be going to the traditional CNN or something for their news. These kids are going to their go-to Mr. Beast on YouTube or like TikToker who's like breaking down the facts. So that is like the group that they've entrusted because that's that's like their Walter Cronkite who they have grown up with. So I think that every generation finds their lane within this. But... I don't think they're that dissimilar. I just think it's a different way that they're coming to the facts.
2: I don't think that's wrong. And I think like, redis- like the sort of redistribution of authority is, is, is part of the feature of the system. I think one of the things that what you just identified speak to is who's the credible person, who's the authority breaking down the facts? And one of the, one of the features of modern media systems is that authority, just like credibility, doesn't really work the way it used to. We have a tendency to confuse popularity for authority. And that's deeply problematic, right? Just because I I am popular doesn't mean I know anything about anything necessarily, right? Like it, it's not really a good substitute. And this is where sort of systems change and the platforms could be helping us. In the same way I talked about sort of the indistinguishability of content being problematic. Like that's something that this the systems that are sorting content for us could help us distinguish. Like if it was in, if they were willing to consider it in their interest to help us be more critical and better understanding, like they could help us distinguish. And the same is true around questions of authority and some of these other pieces is we need systems to help us. We have more content and more information than ever. We live in a constant state of information overload. We are going to look for shortcuts because we are overloaded. Are those shortcuts healthy where we're being helped by systems that are transparent and public about like hey this person you're listening to doesn't have a good history of saying credible stuff they're really funny but like they're not necessarily an expert like or do the systems just substitute things like confirmation bias and proximity for credibility and authority, and let us sort ourselves into sort of dangerous cul-de-sacs culturally, like QAnon.
0: But I would just to kind of go back to the partisan. You know, and I don't. I don't want to deliberately be partisan. It's sort of today's partisanship is a proxy for something old and historical, which I yes. want to get to in a minute. But today, with today's right and left, on the left, when it comes to just disseminating information or people who are sort of trusting certain authorities there's a self correcting self-critical you know uh, feedback loop on the left where of course there's conspiratorial thinking on both sides but the left is better at at teasing it out and saying hey let's rebut this this is not correct like just like you said this person has a history of saying crazy things so where you know it there's more adherence to the scientific method and and you know actual institutions of knowledge on the left whereas the right is not self-critical at all they're just unabashedly in pursuit of power and there's 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 one quote that i wanted to read for y'all in rush limbaugh i think it was on his radio show in 2010 said that the four corners of deceit was media government academia and science he was talking about the left and he was just telling his listeners who are on the right to completely sever yourself from those things, or perhaps even build parallel institutions of our own. So which we can, we can trust, uh, uh, you know, information that, that sort of, you know, benefits us and suits us. It's just like the right is just so it's in a different galaxy from the left. Like, there are, I think tech and media absolutely have universal problems across the board, but there just seems to be something specific and unique going on in the right that has no counterpoint on the left in the same way. So
2: I think part of this is, it, it is a grasp for power. I think you're, you're correct about that. But I think there's something longer term, more historical at work yes. in, in, in how it plays out right now, which is that we talk about living in a democracy, but we live in a republic. Mm -hmm. That republic has always been a mechanism of minority rule in America. Yeah. And the Republican Party, particularly in its current iterations, in the conservative movement that is so tied into sort of traditional white power structures, is very much grasping with like claw marks its minority rule that is why they are more effective and more focused on the least democratic institutions in our country the senate over the house supreme court the filibuster the most anti-democratic things are the things that the that minorities hold on to to maintain power in minority rule and look at on a spectrum, and this all happens on a gradient, like they're hard to draw hard lines here. But if you push far enough down the minority rule, in the direction of minority rule, you get to tyranny, right? You get to a small minority imposing its will on the rest of the country. Now, the minority versus minority distinctions are, are narrower than that right now. Like there are You know, if we look at like party registration, for instance, most people don't want to be in either party. (laughs) But generally speaking, over the last several decades, GOP party membership sort of is in the mid to high 20s and Democratic membership is in the like low 30s, but it's decreasing on the right. And the rise of a more diverse country scares the shit out of people who don't see a path to maintaining power. And so I think you see what you see reflected in what you're describing is a desperation about how they will continue to be represented in power in ways that there is no clear valid path that sort of adheres to institutions and adheres to fact that what is needed is more fiction and fictions that self that that reinforce minority rule. And that's really dangerous right because you end up in a you end up abandoning the things that are supposed to be the shared stories in favor of things that support your reality and as that reality diverges more and more from what is occurring it gets more fantastical and you get more and more sort of susceptible to pseudoscience and conspiracy and i think there's another thing going on this year that i think is worth injecting in this conversation cuz we're talking about like a centuries long sort of evolution of history and sort of mi- sort of minority control in America. And I think, you know, because there's been a debate from the very beginning in the United States about whether the US was too big and too diverse to be a democracy. But the founders, when the founders were talking about too diverse, what they meant was landed white men in the North are too different from landed white men in the South. <laughs> they weren't actually talking about diversity. <laughs> they were yeah. talking about this, like, inc- this very narrow distinction in a very narrow band at the top of society being too diverse. If they saw what we were dealing with now, they lost their fucking minds. Right. <laughs> right. And, but but what's happening right now in this year is add to all of the pressures we talked about building up over gener- over generations, add to that the gasoline and the sorting power of algorithms and new media systems, the lack of credibility, the difficulty of shared spaces and shared stories, Now add to that a pandemic, now add to that the pressure of social isolation and the the public health reality that other people are in fact dangerous, to the pressure of in groups and out groups, to the pressure of conspiracy. And I think we see a moment in time where conspiracy theories are particularly attractive where people are desperate for a sense of safety and belonging, and they're getting that from dangerous places because they're not getting it from, importantly, I think in this question is where are they not getting that from? And one of the answers to, in my opinion, to, to emergent phenomena like conspiracy theories, which are not new, but are sort of more durable and more powerful than ever in QAnon is if people are getting a sense of safety and belonging and purpose, we need to give that to them somewhere healthier. And this is where I look at the democratic
1: party and go, you are failing all of us. Mm. Well, you know, I I do want to take in, in a little bit of a selfish place here, but like, I kind of think that this is a runaway train. (laughs) Uh, And I liked how you talked about informed consent around our monetization in the book. So how how do we get some of these dollars if they're, if they're going to be you know sure doing all these different things you know how do we partake?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I think the economics of how information works are fundamental to understanding the incentives at work and what why why these things aren't working for us. Like one of the central points I try to make in the book is that if you feel like the world is dysfunctional and you feel disconnected from other people and like things are a mess, you are not wrong, and it is not your fault. Like there are huge systems and economies working against you feeling healthy or informed and making the world more dysfunctional. And I think, you know, the economics are interesting because one of the things we see with the rise of social platforms as sort of the mechanisms, primary mechanisms of discovery and distribution of information is that they have disintermediated all, almost all of the revenue in the media system, right? Like it used to, it used to be distributed amongst publishers and and creators. Uh, more than it is now. Now it's like all about sort of like this discovery layers where all the money happens. And what's interesting about that is we're we're the inventory they sell, right? Like our attention is what they're selling. Our attention and behavior is what they're selling to advertisers. We are the inventory. We are a fundamental building block of their supply chain, but we are not compensated for that. And part of the reason why these companies are so profitable is because they don't have to pay for their inventory. They don't have to pay their supply chain the costs of their supply chain are borne by others. And so what about multi-party data transactions? What about when a company uses our information or our attention to generate revenue for themselves by by selling advertisements, why don't we get a part of that? And they could do the math, right? Like it's not it's not like this is too hard, is they just don't wanna share, right? Cause they're companies, they're trying to maximize profit. If they the, the value exchange they think they're giving us is, well, you get access to Facebook and your friends, so that's your value exchange while we make a trillion dollars over here. I just think that's a little uneven, right? Like I'm not saying that Facebook has to become a nonprofit, like they can stay a for-profit company. I just I think like their incentives and my incentives are likely to be more productively aligned if we are included in their economics. I also think they're likely to be a healthier company in a lot of dimensions if that if that is true. You know so i think this question about sort of like us being included being sort of compensated for our data in ways that are sort of more aligned with the actual value is is also a mechanism of starting to like get at the economic inequality that is sort of built into these sort of network based hyper scalable businesses that you know again part of the reason why they're so profitable is they just don't have to pay for their whole they don't have to pay for their
1: whole supply chain that's every single company walmart amazon it's all just at some point someone's being exploited it doesn't mean they can't still make a ton of money
2: now we're edging into the sort of question about is capitalism inherently exploitative
0: right let's get into that
2: i think the answer is probably yes right like (laughs) like i I just don't i I don't know that tldr yes
0: yeah Yeah. tldr yes uh i think it isn't you think it isn't i think it is okay i think that capitalism is michael a couple episodes ago we were talking about marxism uh, I'm not going to go into all of that, but a lot of the pushback against capitalism traces back to a Marxist analysis. But I'm more on the Robert Reich school of thought. Now, he he has like a Netflix documentary called Saving Capitalism. And I'm like, oh, you know, what is this? But he's echoed again. Capitalism as an economic system isn't inherently anything. It isn't inherently good or it isn't inherently bad. It is the way that you write the rules for capitalism in within a society, if you compare America, who has a very dicey history, which you you know uh, so nicely sort of laid out for us. Michael. Dicey is such a
2: kind way of saying
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so exactly. gener- that's so generous. <laughs> so you know a dicey um, history. In its relationship with labor and occupations. Uh, But if you look at other countries, even just today, every single other country practices capitalism in some form or fashion, but they all sort of write the rules a little bit differently. If you define capitalism just as a system where ownership of private property with the free exchange of goods and services, right, and where private ownership over the mode of production rather than the state owning it, right, all other countries practice it in some form or fashion to some degree. And yet they don't have the same kind of inequality that America has. Mm-hmm. So is capitalism actually the our historical independent variable driving everything, where it's just completely perverting everything? Or is our history of minority rule and caste, quite frankly, uh, the independent variable of which capitalism is a dependent variable and is being perverted because of our particular history of slavery, labor, and occupation? I think that capitalism in some other historical context could be completely fine. And there can be a powerful countervailing force that is checking capitalism. In fact, we've even seen it in this country with the New Deal. The New Deal came in to basically rebut just unbounded capitalism and create somewhat of sort of a mixed economy in that, you know, there was the creation of federally chartered unions, you know, unemployment insurance, minimum wage, and a, a huge marginal tax rate of like ninety something percent or something. Mm-hmm. Capitalists in 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 the time of of FDR's administration hated FDR and they hated the New Deal policies and they thought that they were socialists and anti capitalists. But yet it produced the greatest generation and the largest social mobility in American history. So in that world, so like, did World War Two, right? So the military I, I mobilization. You can't, yeah. You
2: know. So I, I like. I think a lot of what you're saying is true. Um yeah. I think I am very comfortable saying American-style capitalism is inherently exploitative. If we add that right. qualifier, I think yeah. we get fr- get to a place where we probably would all nod. I think capitalism as shorthand for like exchange, like private ex- like private exchange mm-hmm. is probably not inherently exploitative, but as soon as you get to sort of modern industrial scale capitalism. I think all the protections you're talking about are required because a capitalism on unchecked is going to result in exploitation. that like you are correct that there is this like huge very huge variance of like, what are the controls and like what are the rules that we're putting on this and how are we how are we thinking about this? But I think ultimately, where humanity is now in our history and i'm like big like humanity all of the, is in a world where we have industrialized meaning and humanity exists largely as an input of labor for the creation of wealth and i think ultimately what is wrong with that is that our definition of meaning is tied to economics that we tie and we have created narratives that support our own exploitation narratives like the dignity of work. As if my dignity had anything to do with my value as an input of labor. The human is a really, really a fundamental question about what is the meaning of life? Is the meaning of life for me to be valuable in economic terms? Fuck no. Like I just don't buy it. I don't believe it. I think it is a lie that we have like really, really bought into particularly in American culture. But when we talk about like quote unquote transformative economics like universal basic income or a wealth tax, what we are talking about is making a cruel system slightly less cruel or making being a robber baron slightly more expensive. We aren't actually talking about transforming the nature or the shape of the economy. We're just trying to make it like slightly more palatable. And I don't think that's real transformation. So this is where like, I I think we can do things to make it more healthier and more fair if we are committed to the idea of my survival being tied to my willingness to work. But I'm not sure that that's assumption that assumption needs to hold.
0: But I think that that language that you laid out, which I completely agree with, is more contemporary. Though I think it is more, you oh, know, I just think it's re- really old. I think it's pre.
2: I think it's like ten thousand years old, and we forgot.
0: So if if we if we disentangle. You know, tying labor to worth or occupation that predates capitalism as well. So sure. you can completely just sort of you know un, uh, sort of untie that to capitalism. Now, we can talk about society, nation building, and occupation and people's worth within within that hierarchy, which can go back into the Roman Empire, which had a caste system and was pre-capitalist. So I, I agree with that kind of language, but I, I would I would love to untangle it from capitalism in that. In America is completely that right now, and it it is intersecting with capitalism absolutely. But I think with with us here, and I you know I talked about the New Deal and everything, and you're 100 percent right. Without the, the the boom of World War II working with the New Deal, we don't get the booming economy in the in the Greatest Generation, and, right? And, and
2: I I only brought that up to say that a lot of people, and I I don't know I would go this far, but would 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 be op- would openly say that that capitalism requires war.
0: Oh, that's it. That those things are tied together. Oh, I love this, Michael. I actually, okay, so, <laughs> all right, all right, okay, I want to, oh man. Nobody that's so knew good. this was going to be I, an economics and history seminar. See, listen, hey, this isn't right. your regular <laughs> book tour, baby. Okay, so let's, all right, this is. What's a book tour? <laughs> that's. <laughs> I mean, that is I'm true. in my what living is, room. Is, <laughs> that is true. Um, <laughs> so, so the war thing, okay, so just, just a quick aside on that. And I always want to get back to to a quick uh, aside America. on war. A quick, that's a good sentence. Yeah. <laughs> that's a
2: good sentence for a Thursday morning.
0: So have you have you heard of um, uh, uh, Joseph uh, Schumpeter? He's this sort of Austrian... Yes. Uh, Austri- okay. So he he wrote a creative, really good creative destruction. Creative destruction, right? And he wrote a essay that I think was before you know getting really into creative destruction about the sociology of imperialism. And he talks about how inherent war and in the military class, you know, sort of the the military nobility, uh, was sort of inherent to creating war and expanding, you know, nation states kind of thing. Right. And he talks about that in sort of a pre-capitalist, he actually, he's using that to rebut the point that you're making, tying war to, 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 to capitalism. I mean, that's a longer thing, but we could talk about that, but I, I, you know, that's sort of one source I would cite to address what you were just saying right there, but with America and sort of the, the undoing of the New Deal society, Fair Deal society, the Great Society. I think you can point to the beginning of that happening with Reagan. And I don't think yes. that Reagan and Reaganomics. I don't think that he rises. I'm
2: going to give you a pearl here.
0: Yeah, hold. Give me one second. Give me one second. I think Reagan. There's no way that Reagan rises to the White House if he does not launch his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, in in Neshoba um, County, where those three you know civil rights kids who were registering people in the South. Got killed by the Klan and police. Um, he launches it in that county, and, and, and in all his language and his speech, he's talking about states' rights. And he knows what he's touching on. He knows what he's mobilizing, a certain sentiment about Southern, you know, sort of the, the Jim Crow caste system. And that we need to get back to that, and enough with all this civil rights bullshit. So I, I think that he harnesses that. It doesn't have
2: quite the same ring to it as Morning in America, but I think you're right. <laughs>
0: So it's like, I think that that's the vehicle that gives him, you know, that capitalists and the plutocracy have been riding to get into Congress and the White House in order to put together these tax cuts and completely gut the Great Society and all of the New Deal policies and then open up this, this sort of new world of, that launched Trump and, and all these other people in, in sort of the world of, of Reaganomics and unbounded capitalism that was putting an end to, to the New Deal society as we know it. You
2: know what I mean? Yes, 100%. And I think what's so important about what you're surfacing here is that President Trump and the sort of de- the the inequality and sort of the dysfunction that we are that we feel right now is is a consequence and a symptom of a long shifting a, a long shifting in American society and culture that 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 is again amplified by media and amplified by social mm-hmm. amplified some yeah. of these other things made, you know, Again, misinformation and disinformation are not new. Propaganda is not new. More effective now, easier to deploy now. And I think we see greater consequences in the forms of like the reintroduction of of explicit political violence as a strategy in America as a consequence of some of this information collapse. But I think the moment you talk about around President Reagan's campaign in particular is so important is, and this is, is. The first person to really popularize the phrase social safety net was President Reagan because he wanted it to be considered pejorative,
0: right? (laughs) He wanted it
2: to be considered not not as something not as a moral covenant that we that we embrace as a way of taking care of each other and ensuring our collective success but that that if you need help you failed exactly you're an american failure if you need to take advantage of a social safety net it's catching you because you fell right the, it shifts the entire the entire conversation about investing in citizens from ensuring success to protecting against failure and that it sort of intru- reintroduces what is ultimately sort of an old narrative about sort of self-reliance and independence and libertarian, there's like sort of libertarian streak that is sort of present yeah. in American culture all the way back to like Manifest Destiny and yeah. colonization. Cowboys. That, that is ultimately really well reflected in the like wildly out of control inequality and sort of corruption that defines like our current political economy and economy economy. And it did start then and it is still going. I think it's where the conversation about when I talked about things like the wealth tax and UBI, which I think are in and of themselves, interesting policy ideas, Mm -hmm. but they accept too much of the premise that like the system we are working can be like tweaked around the edges. Like that we consider those things transformative is part of the problem we have swallowed the lure that like the base case is, Oh no, you should be fine and pull yourself up by your bootstraps on your own. You shouldn't need a social safety net because you won't fail because you're an American. It's just like a fucking fallacy. It is like the idea that we are, have ever been self-reliant is also not true. It's
0: complete bullshit.
2: Like humans are humans don't survive on their own. Like community is how humans Humans are bad at being animals. Otherwise we are snacks for other things. Right? Like, community and our ability to sort of build together into these larger group larger working groups is how humans survive so this the whole myth the whole the concept of self-reliance has always been a lie and i think that leads us up to these other lies and i would put the dignity of work in the same category as something that it forces us to accept exploitation as like a, a source of meaning so that we keep working the way we are required to work or the economy doesn't work because we have to, our, our economy is predicated that it has to grow or we're or it's collapsing and it there is no there is no equilibrium there is no even in the sort of basics of sort of modern economics on the micro side is the principle of non satiety which is more is never bad like it just doesn't even feel spiritually accurate. But our economy is built on that kind of consumption and it requires certain behaviors from us. And, you know, to sort of bring it back around to sort of like this sort of civic dysfunction that we're in, I, I agree with you that we are seeing sort of like President Trump was sort of an inevitability in this progression. And to Michael's point about being a runaway train, I think we are we now have so much momentum made worse by the sorting and the algorithms of information and the lack of truth and trust that if we're not actively working to, to like slow down that train and change the nature of that train, we are headed for the waterfall or we're headed off the track, whatever the metaphor, I've got too many metaphors going now, I can't can't tell what I'm supposed to (laughs) say, but like that, we have to be actively working to reclaim this conversation. Why I'm optimistic about that is I think it's, these systems are not broken. They're working as they were designed, which means they can be redesigned. Right? Like we're not just saying, well, we're screwed unless we turn off gravity. Like that's not what we're saying. Like what we're saying is this thing that we created that is exploiting us needs to be changed. Okay. Let's do that. Let's have that conversation. Let's talk about what we need from these systems. Let's start trying our best to change our own behavior. Let's start using the collective, you know, we talked about how the power of storytelling is more distributed. Now, it doesn't mean it's equal. I think that the conversation about like the democratization of media is a little overstated because like CNN is more powerful than I am just because I am also able to create content doesn't mean I'm like equal to like, we're not all, we don't all have, we have, we have potential equality, right? There's there's more distribution of power. Well, we are the most individuals are the most common node in the graph. So if our behavior starts to change, the graph is like in- different immediately. And so I think our, the potential for collective power is also greater than it's ever been in human history. And that gives me optimism, right? Like that means that moral clarity and moral leadership about where we want to go has the potential to sort of drive transformation at a greater rate than we've ever seen. And I, and that's exciting. Like that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, and no, I agree. And this and this a quick disclaimer. Everybody always like, you know, Ed, are you like super pro capitalist? I'm not like pro capitalism. I'm <laughs> I'm just what I what I like to do so, here I is I didn't
2: mean to pin you on that. Side no, of no, idea. no, I wasn't, no, I really no, was You trying to do that?
0: No, no, you didn't. You didn't. Okay, but okay. I just realized this. The way that I talk sometimes, people can just misconstrue me. Basically, I I I mostly I think oftentimes you know our popular logic is that we lay it all on the feet of capitalism, and we therefore duck other underlying problems mm. in the country. I'm not saying mm. that you're saying that. I'm just saying generally. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear which that. Which is why I always push back against people that are just arguing you know, against capitalism.
2: Yeah, no, I think that caveat's important and I think it surfaces one other thing that's worth throwing into the conversation, which is our current media systems are very allergic to nuance. And that has made our culture allergic to nuance. Like we like black or white thinking. It's either all 100% unfettered, unregulated capitalism or... I don't even know what's on the other end of the spectrum. But it's like it's like totally either or sort of thinking. And we see it show up in a like an imprecision about language and a sort of readiness to like be conclusively declarative in as like short and simple a way as humanly possible because it draws a lot of attention. And unfortunately, most of the dysfunction we face is more nuanced than that. It's more complicated than that. And the solutions require you know, why I focus on sort of the concept of healthy discourse is we need to be able to argue and we need to be able to argue productively. And that means listening to each other. That means hearing other arguments. That means like taking time to think and reflect, to change, to evolve in our own thinking and the possibility of making mistakes and changing and self-reflecting and addressing and being different. Like we need space for those things or we aren't going to have space for redemption. If we don't make space for those things, we end up in a world where the runaway train is inevitable. And I don't, I don't want to be in that world. I think it's important to – we talked about this uh, in our first attempt at this conversation. But, like, discourse doesn't mean civility. This is something that, like, I, I just want to be really clear about. Civility is usually a tool of oppression. Civility is usually, like, a way to get people to pipe uh, – particularly people in opposition to pipe down. And I think we can be vociferous in our opposition and still be kind. But that's going to come across as impolite sometimes, and that's okay. Discomfort is part of growth. Interacting with the unfamiliar and like dealing with the discomfort of having to change is necessary. And the thing we have to be kind and careful with is... When sort of unfamiliarity and discomfort pushes boundaries into fear and harm and how we manage those edges. And like what I'm, what kind of discomfort I feel safe with is going to be very different than what someone else feels safe with. I'm a cis white male in America. I'm almost always safe, right? Like I got to be really careful about, I don't get to determine what is safe for everyone else. Like that is wildly inappropriate. But how we all butt up against our own boundaries of sort of discomfort and challenging and safety is something that like has to be part of the conversation.
1: Well, Michael, we appreciate you coming on. The book is for all the people, for everyone out there. Uh, you, you get to lean in a bit with your in-laws when you're having those those fun conversations this summer. <laughs> Vaccine approved, hopefully. Um, But all jokes aside, this was a really fun conversation. We hope to have you back. And yeah, everyone, we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for having me. Peace.